Imagine a world where the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. The prophets of old have foretold that that day is coming. As impossible as it might seem to us, this is the mission that we have as God's people to make him known. And God has promised that there will be success. If you missed this morning's Sunday school hour, uh, as Paul uh, presented to us about praying, um, I want to encourage you to catch up with that. Um, go to our website and, and watch that. I, I couldn't help but think how if all of us were really given to praying the way he talked about, how it would not only revolutionize our lives, but revolutionize our community and, and even our world. So we think about giving toward missions, my part in missions, giving. It raises the question, why do we give toward missions, and why should we? The question is actually rooted in a deeper question. Why do we give at all? And why should we give to those outside our local body of believers? And in a word, the gospel is the reason. I want to talk to you this morning about gospel giving. The good news, the gospel, is all about God's having given us the gift of salvation because of His grace, not because of our deserving it. The gospel powerfully transforms selfish rebels into loving saints, and love's nature is to give to others. And finally, by definition, good news should be shared. It, it makes us others-focused. A church that does not give beyond its own walls is more like a social club than a church on mission. Well, the classic passage on giving in response to needs outside one's own local church family is found in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul makes the case for the church in Corinth to step up in their giving to help fellow believers in the Jerusalem area that are suffering from famine. And in obedience to Christ, Jewish believers historically had, a, had evangelized not only Judea, but Samaria and Cyprus and Asia and Greece. Corinth was in southern Greece, called Achaia at the time, whereas Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were in northern Greece, called Macedonia. These Gentile churches were planted by Jewish missionaries, demonstrating that the gospel of Christ, the Messiah, had broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and had made them one people of God. This was the mystery that Paul talks about in his epistles, revealing that the people of God weren't just Jews, but, but all nations, and that Christ was the means by which all nations would be reconciled to God. Now, think about it. Christ chose a devout Pharisee, a persecutor of Christians, who prided himself in being separate from Gentiles, he chose him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And his name was Saul, known to us as Paul. And this reaching Gentiles for Christ became his life's work. And in our passage, he's going to call on Gentile churches 
to show their God-created solidarity with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ by giving in a tangible way that proved that they were actually part of the people of God. We're not going to read all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, but we are going to read the first section of 8 and the last section of 9 to get a sense for where Paul goes with this. It's a lengthier passage than we normally look at, but I think it will help us understand where this goes. So 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave, according to their means, as as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We skip over to the second half of 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgivings to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Three great truths we want to look at from this passage, these passages this morning. First is that grace produces generosity. Grace produces generosity. We see that in the first eight verses of chapter 8. Secondly, generosity receives reward, verses 6 through 14 of chapter 9. And finally, the gospel 
displays the ultimate generosity. Verse 9 of chapter 8, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 9. Consider with me first the reality that grace produces generosity. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Remember, those are the churches in northern Greece. For in a severe test of affliction, and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These churches in northern Greece included Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, at least those that we know about. We know from Paul's letter to the Philippians and from the history that Luke records in Acts that the church in Philippi was especially generous in helping Paul on more than one occasion in his ministry needs. In our study of the Thessalonian epistles, we learned about the persecution and suffering that these churches endured from the beginning. This mistreatment, you know, naturally created financial hardship. I think sometimes we think, you know, suffering for Jesus means, oh, well, you suffered for Jesus and that's the end of it. But it, there's, a, there's a ripple effect. There's a, there's a cascading kind of effect. And when you're persecuted... And when you're mistreated, it often has implications on a number of levels, physical levels, material levels, um, your, your mindset, uh, you're at risk in multiple ways. And, and that makes their generosity even more significant. It was clearly the outflow of God's gracious work in their lives. Because what do we do when, when the financial resources start to dry up? Well, we tighten the belt. We... we we pull things in, and instead, they open things up to give more. It's easy to assume, then, that you have to be rich to be generous. And, of course, you know, typically, you, very few people think of themselves as rich because you can always find people that have more than you do. And so those would be the rich people, you know, not, not us. But the reality is that your generosity has less to do with the state of your finances than the state of your heart. You can be a generous five-year-old. You can be a stingy multimillionaire who is at the peak of his performance. Ironically, statistics show that among church-going people, as income goes up, the proportion of giving goes down. Now, why is that? Because the more you possess the greater the danger that your possessions will possess you. You know, think about it. As God adds to what you have, it's hard to imagine not having what you have. Even though maybe you live for many years without having what you have now, to give it up now is really hard to do because you've gotten used to having it. What is it then that breaks the self-centered human tendency to hoard what we gain? And this passage provides us the insight we need. In verse 3 we read, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. These churches begged to share in bringing relief to their fellow believers in Jerusalem. Nobody's putting pressure on them to give. They were putting pressure on to have the privilege of giving. 
They desire to do so. By the way, ultimately, people do according to their desire. If you will figure out where your heart is, you'll have a good index of where your actions are going to be. Because all this starts in the heart, my heart attitude. That's why it's so important to fight the spiritual battles, guarding your heart, uh, feeding your heart on the right things, focusing your heart where it belongs. Now, what is driving this self-sacrificing desire from the heart? Well, they first gave themselves to the Lord. All that I have is yours, God. Okay? All that I am is yours. So when they gave themselves to the Lord, all their possessions came with it. You're not, you're not looking at your stuff as your stuff because you yourself don't even belong to yourself. You belong to God. You belong to God. And that means everything you have belongs to God. And then by the will of God to us, because they saw the apostles as doing the Lord's work, they were all in because they were already committed to the Lord. You know, a lot of times we just think on human levels, they, but their, their generosity wasn't rooted in admiring devotion to Paul and his companions, but in love for God himself. They gladly helped Paul with the offering for the saints because they loved God. It's the highest possible motivation. It's not dependent on the star power of human beings nor deterred by their failures and their foibles. It's driven by grateful love for God. And true love for God always creates love for God's people. We learned that in 1 John. In fact, 1 John will call you out on this. If you're not loving people, you don't love God. And if you love God, you're going to love people. In 2 Corinthians 8, 6 through 8, he goes on, accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So he's calling this giving grace or an act that's coming from the grace at work in their hearts. As you excel in everything, faith, speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness in our love for you, with a slight variation that could be even their love for us, your love for us, see that you excel in this act of grace also. It's almost there's an old saying, put your money where your mouth is, okay? And, and the reality is your money will follow where your heart is. Your money will express. What you do with what you value expresses what you value. He says, I say this not as command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So God's grace toward them and God's grace at work in them. These churches in northern Greece, Macedonia, powered their generosity. Genuine love fueled their earnestness. And Paul calls on the believers in Corinth to prove their love to be genuine in the same way. Why was he having to do this? Well, they lived in a wealthy city. And they had not been harassed the same way as the churches in the north had been. And for that reason... They were in much better shape financially than the Macedonian believers, and they were much uh, more used to a comfortable lifestyle. Despite that reality, and despite their having received the same gospel, their giving was lagging behind. There was no legitimate reason for it. They needed to step up. For love is the queen virtue of the fruit of the Spirit, Spirit indwelling all true believers and love 
by its very nature, gives generously. We love giving generously to those that we love. It's an expression of our love. Love that withholds is not genuine love. So as we think about this reality that, that grace is what drives, creates generosity, in what ways does the way you live display the generous nature of the gospel? I mean, in our culture, in some ways this is easy and in some ways this is hard. I mean, it's culturally acceptable for you to be friendly to people. You live in one of the friendliest cities in the nation, okay? So that's the way we do it here. So this shouldn't be that hard, but, but we also, as, as, as you compare to many places in the earth, we, we live comfortably and wealthy, and, and then what that tends to do is to draw us self-focused. And so, in what ways does the way you live display the generous nature of the gospel? I mean, when people who know you, your neighbors, your friends, your family, would they say about you, you know, one of the key things about him, one of the key things about her is how generous they are toward other people. And think about this. Why is it impossible given what we've looked at, for truly godly, a truly godly person to be other than generous. Like, don't give yourself a pass on this. If you're not generous, you're not godly, period. It's not possible. Because God's character is generous. And if you're close to God, you're going to be generous too. Now, as we think about that, what what common excuses for not being generous... Do we need to reject and forsake? What are the, we'll call them reasons at first, what are the reasons you give for not being generous? Now let's define that properly. What are the excuses you give for not giving generously? And we're not talking just about material things, but about yourself. What needs do you know about that provide you a way to show love for Christ and for others through your generous response. So let's start there. It's one thing, you know, if you don't know about any needs, it's hard to know what to give toward, but so start paying attention to the needs. If I'm watching, if I'm listening, if I'm interacting with people, if I'm listening to gospel partners share, you know, what are the needs that come up? And and what what a joy and a reason for praising God it is when we hear about a need and almost immediately that need is met. We've had that happen on occasion. Secondly, we learn from these passages that generosity receives reward. In verse 6 of chapter 9, we read the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You're not doing it because you have to. I remember talking to an elderly lady once, not here in our church, but, but she when she talked about her giving, she says, I pay, I pay. Like there's like, it was like, you know, paying your taxes or something like that. It, and she knew to the penny all the way back to the twenties, what she had paid for everything, um, including what she had given to her church. Hopefully that's not the way you're thinking about your, your giving. 
In fact, you know, I'll just make a little side thing here. You know, people debate about, well, you know, is tithing for, you know, is, is it for today? And, you know, so we're like, what exactly is the 10%? Is that gross or is that net? And is that, is that old, you know, Old Testament legalism or, or you know, s- stop all the number counting and just be generous and try tipping your waitress or waiter 10% and see if they call that generous. Okay? In other words, let your measure be generosity, and, and if you're going to count, okay, just make sure the numbers are high, okay? But, but often when we're counting, it's like, how much do I have to give? That, that's not the mindset of it at all. For one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word we get hilarious from. Like, just like has the best time giving. It's a good thing. Everybody who's done any gardening, let alone farming, knows that you're not throwing away seed when you plant it. What did you do with those garden seeds? Oh, I buried them in the dirt. (laughs) What? You buried them in the dirt? What a waste of good seed. No, that's the way farming works. However much you plant determines the proportion of what you'll harvest, provided there's no disaster that wipes out the crop. And no farmer in his right mind would refuse to plant his seed in the ground in order to save his seed. He will end up with far less than the farmer who plants the seed. For what is planted will grow all the more. And the same is true of giving. A person who's stingy in giving limits the harvest he could have had. A harvest with far-reaching blessings beyond even just material gain. Galatians 6, 7 through 10, Paul says to these believers, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, so he's self-centered, indulgent, will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's a connection between whether you're alive in Christ and whether you are a generous giver. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, so here's the practical everyday application, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound, overflow to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So this person is not worried that he won't have enough. He knows that the God who supplies whatever he has can provide yet more. He will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. So he uses what he has for good. That's why he has it. That's why God gave it. It's to be used for good. His beneficial work for others overflows. People too stingy to give are the ones, as a rule, 
who seem to be always coming up short. I mean, why should God give you more? You're not using what you have the right way. Verse 9 quotes from Psalm 112, 9, in a section describing the happiness of the man who fears Yahweh and delights in his commandments. And one of the chief virtues of this godly man's character is his generosity. God is lavishly generous, and so is anyone who is truly godly. So, in verse 10, Paul goes on, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. So, think about you're sowing it. The purpose is to feed. Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The harvest is going to be used for making bread. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. Why has God given you what you have? So that you can be generous. Why has God given you more? So that you can be even more generous. The reason God provides us much is to pass it on. Not just money, but everything we have. Not just things, but time and effort, ability, opportunity, strength. These things, you know, as you look around a congregation, as you get to know people, these, there's a lot of variation of what God gives to different people. What are you using? You know, stop worrying about what you don't have. What are you doing with what you do have? Serving other believers in this generous way multiplies praise to God. God gets glory, and he deserves it. Because he's the one that supplied whatever we have. And he's the one who transforms our naturally self-centered hearts to hearts eager to help others with whatever he has given us. He works that transformation through the gospel. So, when the Greek Christians gave so generously to Jewish Christians in need, they displayed the beauty and the power of the gospel in their lives. They, they proved that the Messiah was their Savior King too. You know, we don't feel an obligation to feed everybody. We feel an obligation toward family. And so what they were saying is, your family, your family. And I just make, before we go any further, I just make this comment. I, I pray God gives us great success as we seek to share the gospel. I pray that, that there's a day when, when we will have as many people joining the church, uh, having come to faith in Christ through our witness as those that have transferred from other places. But you do realize that when that happens, we're going to need to give more because there'll be more needs, there'll be more baggage. There'll be more demands. And, and the reality is that as the gospel goes forth, as it succeeds, as there, there are more and more needs multiplied, there are more and more people to whom we are obligated to do something for them. In fact, Paul would say, I'm debtor to the whole world. I'm debtor to Jews and Greeks because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. In verse 12, he says, For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I mean, you're taking something that's worth, that's valuable only for time and, 
and you're making it valuable forever. You're taking something that's on earth and, and you're making it valuable in heaven. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the passing grace of God upon you. These verses reveal that there is yet more blessing. Besides glorifying God for such generosity, those that received help from these Gentile Christians grew in their affection for these relatively new believers. I mean, if, you, if you're generally born again, when you see somebody else transformed and, and like their character is altered and they become more like Jesus, I mean, it makes you want to start high-fiving. I mean, it, you're, it's so exciting to actually see that happen. It, it gives praise to God. When Christians respond to real need with loving generosity, they create this surge of, of grateful and affectionate response. In fact, someone has said the way to a heart is through a wound. And when you respond to need, you awaken love in the heart. The human heart loves to be loved, and love generates love. Evidently, the Corinthian church took Paul's admonition to heart, judging from history, and ended up giving heartedly. For decades later, toward the end of the first century, Clement of Rome wrote to the church in Corinth regarding the impact of their generosity on this occasion. He spoke of their being, quote, more glad to give than to receive, and with an insatiable desire for doing good. So let me ask you, as we think about generosity receiving reward, what makes you worry you won't have enough? What makes you worry you won't have enough? And, and to counteract that, in what ways can the law of the harvest encourage you to be more generous? To stop letting your fears restrain your expression of what God's doing in your heart and instead lean into it and see what God will do. Whose life have you enriched because of what Jesus has done for you? Think about your connections. Think about every connection you have. I mean, we, we have our family. You know, does, does my family know me as a generous person? Does my family know me as one that's attentive to need and that quickly responds to it, whatever it costs me? Does my family know that? Do my coworkers know that? Do my neighbors know that? Do my, my fellow church members know that? Is this, is, this, is this the way I display the gospel to them? And, you know, what holds us back is that we're afraid we might lose too much if we do this. And Paul says, oh, no, oh, no. You will gain all the more. You will receive great reward. And then finally... And really what's at the hub of all of this, the gospel displays the ultimate generosity. In verse 9, we see that generosity displayed in the life of Jesus himself. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty become rich. The Lord Jesus, our Messiah, displayed lavish, self-sacrificing generosity. Without us having done so, we would have no hope at all. He was rich beyond measure. He owns the universe. 
And he, he gave up everything right down to his very lifeblood. And he did it to make us rich with the internal inheritance that he alone deserves. Think about it. It, it was his. He is heir of all things. And he made himself poor to say, I want you to be an heir with me. The poorest person in heaven is richer than the richest person on earth. Think about it. In 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 13, by their approval of this service, we've seen these verses before, but now we're looking at a different facet of them. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The gospel of Christ is the benchmark. It's the measure. God gave us Christ, and with Christ, he gave us all things. So, so great a gift God has given us in Christ that words are inadequate to describe how vast. In fact, I really think our minds are inadequate to grasp it. it it's so, it's so, when you see the description, it's so vast, you're saying, wait a minute, that's just too good to be true. It, it's, it takes faith, reliance on God's reliability, that his promises are actually so, for us to hold on to that because it's too good. But one day, you and I in the coffee shop of heaven or tea if you don't like coffee, we're going to be leaning back and laughing and, and to think we thought it wouldn't be good enough. And, and to think we thought that, that we were really sacrificing. Look at what we gained. Look at what we gained. It's just so great a gift that words are inadequate to describe how vast the treasure God has given us in Christ. And, and with that gift as our supreme standard, there's no limit as to what we could give in keeping with it. He set the outer limits. So let us be lavish in our generosity just as God through Christ has been lavish in his. We can spend a lifetime displaying that loving generosity and the way we give ourselves on behalf of others for the glory of Christ. So some practical thoughts, and these aren't so much questions as maybe directives or guides. Keep your eyes open for every opportunity you have to be generous toward the needs of others. Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. Listen to prayer requests you hear, including those from our gospel partners. They often reveal ways you can give for the sake of the gospel. And then make sure you don't spend all your resources of money, time, and energy on yourself and your family. Who else does God want you to help so that you are sowing for a greater harvest? Our mission, our stated mission, is to proclaim and to display the gospel. And gospel giving, gospel generosity is the key to doing both. For grace produces generosity, 
Generosity brings reward, and the gospel displays the ultimate generosity. May God make us godly in this way. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You are a giving God, for we we are well aware of Your power. It's evident to us in the creation that's around us. We're well aware of your righteousness, for our consciences condemn us for when we do wrong and think wrong and desire wrong. But Lord, where we struggle is whether you are actually, you are actually good to the level of forgiving sinners and making rebels into saints and giving us eternal life and an eternal inheritance in Christ, that you are actually that good, so good that though we deserve to be destroyed by you, we fall with full faith upon your grace and your mercy to receive us and to make us whole and to make us wealthy in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.